0: morning church good to see everybody here beautiful summer sunday if you're a guest special welcome to you hope you feel quickly at home have met some guests already this morning which is a lot of fun and um my name is kelly if you're a guest i serve as senior pastor it's my joy to open god's word with us this morning we're in a sermon series going through first timothy we're in first timothy chapter two this morning Turn with me there in your copy of the scripture so that you can follow along most easily. There may be some things you want to circle or underline. It'll also be on the screen um, so that you can follow along. It's our habit in preaching at Galaam Bible Church to make our way through books of the Bible. A couple years ago, we spent 83 weeks in the Gospel of Luke. One of the benefits of moving from the beginning to the end of a book is that The preacher must address the topics that the original author addresses. If I were to skip this morning's passage, it would say more about my confidence in God's word than my addressing the passage, is my point. Any temptation a preacher might have to avoid certain topics is undermined as we make our way from the beginning to the end of a book because God's word is setting the agenda uh, through the original author, and we just make our way through it, seeing what God's word has for us from the original author. Knowing this should comfort us, it should comfort us when we hear a difficult word from scripture, knowing that it wasn't the preacher who picked the topic for the day. It doesn't reflect the preacher's personal agenda, but rather represents God's Word for us. It protects us, frankly, uh, from uh, any temptation or weakness a preacher might have to make it about his personal agenda, to make the pulpit ministry about a personal agenda. And frankly, I'm thankful that I'm not responsible for setting the agenda of teaching each week, But rather, simply responsible for expounding on what's already been said. And I'll do my best this morning to neither overstate nor understate what God's word is saying. The title of this sermon series is Instructions for Godly Leadership. And in my first sermon a couple weeks ago, this is the fourth, so three, three weeks ago, I noted, four weeks ago, I noted that godly leadership conforms to the gospel not simply in position, what we think, believe, about the gospel, but in posture, how we work it out, how we live it out. And so if, if you're a parent and you want your kids to know the gospel, it's not simply telling them the truth and making sure they affirm the truths mentally, the academic word, or, or the academics of the gospel, Christ alive, uh, living, sinless, dead buried raised ascended soon to return that's the that we can ascend to that uh ascend to that rather mentally but to teach the gospel to our kids we actually have to live it out we have to show them the gospel we have to demonstrate the love of christ so that they hear it from us and they see it worked out hands and feet in a very practical way the same is true in the church, we need that from the leaders in the church and from each other. We need a verbal witness and we need a living testimony demonstration. And in this morning's passage, I think we will have ample opportunity to do just that. Because this morning's passage addresses some culturally difficult topics, that it won't, it won't be enough simply to uh, give our assent to those topics, they're being true, but we're going to have to live it out. We're going to have to demonstrate how the love of Christ comes to life through living this out. Now, when it comes to difficult topics, the church father, Augustine of Hippo, Hippo is in uh, modern Algeria, right? So Augustine of Hippo, also known as as Saint Augustine, third and fourth century church father, he said about difficult topics in Essentials unity. In non-essentials, freedom or liberty. In all things, charity, kindness towards one another. An essential doctrine is one having to do with salvation. It's the, those doctrines that we need to cling to with a closed fist. We're not letting them go, because to let them go would be to undermine salvation. These are the beliefs that we must agree upon in order to find our place in redemptive history and to offer salvation to others. For example, the sinfulness of humanity, it's an essential doctrine. The deity of Christ, it's an essential doctrine. Christ, God came in the flesh to die for us the uh, sufficiency of the cross in the shed blood of Christ to cover all sin, not just some sin, but all sin. That's that's an essential doctrine. On these, we can't equivocate, we can't waffle. Non-essential doctrines are those beliefs that don't bear directly on salvation, but are nonetheless important. In other words, simply to say something is non-essential is not to say it's unimportant. And this morning, we're going to consider some important matters, albeit non-essentials, and we're praying that our posture towards one another will be charitable. Even if we disagree with each other's inessentials, inessentials unity and non-essentials liberty, freedom, you may disagree with me this morning on how I interpret God's word, and propose that we apply it in all things charity. All right, here's our passage. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I'm starting in verse 8, sorry. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but adorning themselves with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness, in full submission, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety. You know, it occurs to me if you're a guest this morning, um (laughs) yay good you're following me Uh Woo! can you can cut it with right so if you're a guest i actually think this is a great morning to visit because you get to see lord willing uh and hear not just our our position on this but maybe witness our posture and in our charitableness towards one another our gentleness and kindness with each other, which is really, that's the type of community you wanna be a part of. One that takes God's word seriously, spotting the essentials, but then also says there's a lot important in here that we need to be able to talk about. We're not gonna skip over. We believe God's word's authoritative and, and we're gonna treat it as it's presented to us and we're gonna wrestle with it. And so I actually think it's a great morning to visit and um, would encourage you to listen into the podcast. I'll talk more about that a little bit later. All right, so our passage begins with the word, therefore, which means we need to ask, what is he referencing? What came before? And just before this section, Paul had addressed the primacy of prayer in verses one to seven, and then eight to 15, we just read. So in one to seven, it's the primacy of prayer. Verse, uh, chapter two, verse one, I urge you, therefore, first of all, first things, of primary importance, that you be people that pray pray and on that basis he next addresses our our relatedness to one another as people who are praying so 8 through 15 is about how we relate to one another as people that are praying and want our prayers to be effective men and women that are living lives of worship of which prayer is an essential element of that so he says therefore i want verse uh, 8 men everywhere to pray Lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. In the ancient Jewish culture, prayers were made with head raised up and hands raised up. There's this expectant posture of dependence, perceivably, right? Dependence, expectation, but also dependence upon God, humility before God. In fact, I would encourage this. It's a great way to pray. You can pray on your knees uh, for certain. But in the first century Jewish culture, it was hands, eyes raised upwards, this posture of dependence and expectation. Uh, but this verse is also encouraging a humility, not only before God, God, I, I need these requests, I make these requests to you, you, are, you care for me, right? The posture of uh, dependence and humility, but also a humility among each other. There is a, a dependence upon God and a recognition that we have to get along with one another as well as we're appealing to the creator of all people, we need to be getting along. He says, and so I I want you to lift up hands in prayer without anger or disputing. So as you're lifting up uh, hands in prayer, be aware of the fact that if you've set each other on edge. Paul's instruction seems to indicate that the spiritual life of men within the Ephesian church was being undermined by angry disputes. He's raising the issue. So something that must have made him raise the issue. There must have been some issues in this respect that they were having with one another. In short, lifting up holy hands implies this person is living at peace with God and can come to him in prayer and is living at peace as much as possible with others, not alienating them. The practical application is pretty straightforward. If you have something against someone, then you need to work to repair that. If your prayers are going to be effective. In summary, harboring anger toward others weakens the effectiveness of our prayers. That's the context. Pray. First of all, I urge you to pray. Lift up holy hands without disputing and anger towards each other. Jesus tells us, in fact, to interrupt our worship if we, if we remember someone has something against us or there is friction between us and others. It's on the screen, Matthew 5, if you're offering your gift at the altar. If you gather with God's people in worship and they remember that your brother has something against you, that you've ticked somebody off, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. If you feel... As though your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, you're having trouble in communion with God, then make sure your communion with each other is working, that you're at peace with one another. Let's keep reading verse 9 and 10. I also want the women to, to dress modestly, with decency and propriety adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, I should note, and I didn't do this in first service, simply because he addresses men lifting up holy hands without anger and disputing does not mean that women are are free to pray while ticking each other off. (laughs) And in the same, good, in the same vein, just because he addresses modesty among women in the effort to be a praying community, doesn't mean that men can live immodest lives and are free to do so. That's not the case. Because just as Paul's instructions here to men and women seem to indicate that men in Ephesus needed to treat one another better, it seems that he also is concerned with how women are behaving in the gathering with each other. You see, just as living at peace with one another, not in angry disputes, but living at peace is essential for effective prayer, modesty, that is demonstrating humility in the way that we dress and interact with each other is essential for effective prayer. How is that, or why is that? Why does modesty matter? Well, immodesty, let's start there, impacts our relationship with others. Because immodesty is the practice of utilizing God's gifts for personal glory and selfish gain. While modesty is the practice of using the gifts I've been given for God's glory and the good of all. God's gifts may include things like wealth, beauty, physical strength, intellect, relational skills, We're immodest when we seek selfish advantage through the gifts God has given us. We're modest when we use God's gifts to bring glory to God and serve others. This means immodesty is at its root fueled by self-centeredness and arrogance. As a result, it fuels competition. Immodesty fuels competition in a gathering of people it doesn't facilitate communion. We're to be the communion of saints. Modesty, however, is rooted in thankfulness. I'm thankful for the gifts I've received, and I'm thankful so that I'm, and my thankfulness is demonstrated in that I'm gonna use the gifts I've received not to position myself above others or to gain selfish influence, but to serve the folks that I'm around. Is this making sense? Using the examples given in today's passage, elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, expensive clothes, an immodest person would select clothing in order to gain power and influence. While a modest person would select clothing that serves the community best, fosters communion. We actually talk about dress on the platform for this very reason. If you've never been up on the platform, um, maybe you've not thought about it, but we encourage people on the platform to dress in a way that doesn't draw attention to themselves, that actually presents themselves well, but actually doesn't make us the focus, so that Christ is the focus. This rule should apply in all of life, frankly, the application point's pretty straightforward. Dress in such a way as to not compete with one another. Dress in such a way that strengthens communion. In short, don't parade your expensive clothing or your, um, yeah, don't parade yourself. Jesus said, Matthew five sixteen, let them see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven not your rolex watch and and i'm not saying it's inappropriate to have a rolex watch Uh, or whatever right sorry (laughs) all right here's my point so while there's nothing wrong with christians wanting to look nice we must ask ourselves why we're buying what we're buying and wearing what we're wearing it's very important to have modesty discussions because we want to be a place of communion, not competition. We want to serve one another, not alienate each other or distract each other from the message of the gospel. Now, whenever the issue of modesty comes up, people often want specific guidelines, and I'm hesitant to provide them, and I want to speak to my hesitancy because I think we should all be very careful in judging why others are wearing what they're wearing, or buying what they're buying. I'm hesitant to provide guidelines for modesty because modesty is ultimately a matter of the heart, not the hymn line. You follow me? It's ultimately a matter of the heart. You don't know my heart. I barely know my heart, but as best I can discern, I picked this gorgeous outfit this morning. Right? Right. So we need to be really careful. In fact, I'll go so far as to say two people can wear the exact same outfit for very different heart motivations. One man, I'll pick on men, one man man could go and spend his entire life savings on a suit because he wants to empower himself in a particular setting. He wants to exercise some influence in a particular setting. While another man could wear the exact same suit simply because his mom bought it for him and she expects him to wear it. So when we look from the outside at what others are wearing, let's tread really lightly. We don't know what's motivating people for what they're wearing. In fact, I'd go so far as to say, many people live immodest lives, and immodesty can be a part of our speech. Let me me lay out my resume for you, right? Immodesty can be a part of our speech, it can be a part of our dress, And in in my immodest moments, much of it's fueled not by security, but by insecurity. Something you wouldn't be able to tell necessarily from just watching me boast or parade what I'm wearing. So we need to tread really lightly when we are looking or observing others. But we need to have the discussion because what's going on in our heart matters. We need to invite each other to modest lifestyles right and we want to talk about with our children how to enjoy the gifts of God without using them as weapons within community i had one other example and got lost hang on a minute i'm also hesitant to provide modesty guidelines because to some extent dress is culturally conditioned. And so what might have been, and apparently was, out of bounds from Paul's perspective in the first century Ephesus, may or may not be out of bounds in the 21st century America. I'm assuming some of you, I cut my own hair. (laughs) It won't surprise some of you, but I'm sure many of us spend more on their hair than I spend on mine. So what might have been out of bounds in the first century Ephesus is not necessarily out of bounds in 21st century America. And I never had this more clearly portrayed to me than from a missionary who lived across the street after serving in Africa for almost three decades. She was a mother, she was a grandmother, she came off the mission field. What would you say on the topic of modesty, I'm asking her. And she goes, well, I've got a story for you. She served for decades in these little villages in Africa where women women would not dare to show their knees but walked around topless. And so we need to be really careful and admit that modesty has some, uh, it's driven to some extent by culture and, and what's acceptable in the broader culture, but it's also a matter of the heart. It's an important discussion to be have, having because we want to be thankful people, not living in competition, but seeking communion, connection with each other and encouraging each other as people of prayer. So the short of, it, the short of it is, if you feel your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, then ask God whether there are areas of your life in which you are in competition with other believers or other people where you're using... Are there areas of my life where I'm using your gifts as weapons for selfish gain rather than exercising the gifts you've given me for the good of all? All right. Let's press on. Verse 11 through 15. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve... And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. In our modern day, few passages of Scripture are as countercultural as those five verses. And I would urge us um, to not check out. Um, and to wrestle with these, and to wrestle with the cultural implications of these verses. So what's Paul saying, and how do we apply it to our lives? Here's what I believe Paul's saying in summary. In the church, men and women have complementary roles that are aimed at strengthening a lifestyle of prayer and worship. So remember the overall focus of this chapter is prayer and worship. The NIV even has a heading uh, on worship that they insert in there, it wasn't in the original, but they, you know, those that translated the NIV and the ESV believe it's, it's a focus on prayer and worship. Men are to, to be, pay, in Ephesus are to pay careful attention to their disputes with each other. Women are to pay careful attention to lives of modesty. Both of which, immodesty and disputes, can be barriers to prayer. Next, Paul turns his attention to the exercise of authority. And a very specific authority, exercise of authority, uh, being referred to here, what I describe as teaching authority. And the point is that men and women have distinct roles in the exercise of this particular teaching authority. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over man. She must be quiet. Something very particular is going on here. And when I say in the church, I say in the church because I want to narrow uh, the scope of the prohibition. I mean to note that the church is a unique organism in all creation. Unlike any other organization in the world, which means the complementarity that men and women have, according to Paul here, the roles they have in the church with regard to teaching authority do not extend into the marketplace. I see no biblical prohibition against a woman exercising the highest levels of teaching authority as a CEO, a president of a company, or even the president of our country. But the church is unlike any other gathering or group of people in the world. It's a living organism and I would would encourage us to wrestle with what do we believe is going on here? Wrestle with why, what do we believe God's doing among us? Why do we gather? Who gathers us? And the clearest testimony of scripture is that we gather because God's brought us out of death because of our sins into new life through faith in Christ and given us to each other in the local church. That this is a supernatural, living, breathing organism that God is growing. Jesus said, I'll build the church. This is unlike any other organization out there. And because it's like, unlike any other organization, we are charged with representing in a unique way God's person, God's purposes, God's design in creation. Together, as we do that work together, we bring glory to God and we make the gospel known. The church is the vehicle, They're the uh, I like to call it God's minivan uh, for salvation, the vehicle in which we all get in. It's not a real uh, sexy vehicle. Uh, it's it's kind of fuddy duddy, right? The minivan, like the the station wagon of redemptive history. But it is no less. I mean, we're tripping over each other. We're stumbling over each other. But make no mistake: the church is the vehicle of God, carrying the message of the gospel. It's unique. And when I describe men's and women's roles within the church as complementary, I mean to note that while men and women are equal in value, there are some distinct roles given to both. So it's important for us to understand that Paul's not saying that women are of lesser value or of lesser importance or even have lesser roles but rather that there are some differences in the roles. How are men's and ro- women's roles complementary? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, men are to fill the role of authoritative teacher. Paul writes in verse 12, I, don't, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Do these verses mean that women can't ever teach or lead exercising authority. No, absolutely not. The gifts of teaching and leadership are given by the Holy Spirit without respect to gender. Many, many women are gifted and called to teach and lead within the church, even teaching and leading men. In fact, it's clear that women actively participated in teaching men in the early church. I'll give you some examples of which Paul would have been keenly aware. Priscilla took the lead in teaching Apollos, Acts chapter 18. Discipling Apollos. And Priscilla's name in the scripture is listed before her husband's name, Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos. But the listing of Priscilla's name first seems to indicate she took the prominent role of discipling. Apollos. So it can't be that quiet means silent. It just can't be. Luke even, Luke even says that in Acts, he's writing Acts, that women are to prophesy and pray. It's Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit descends. Peter gets up, Luke's recording it, and Peter explains it's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophet Joel's words that my sons and daughters will prophesy. Not just sons will prophesy, sons and daughters will prophesy. And we know according to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11 that he encouraged women to prophesy. And prophecy included both ecstatic utterance, that means unplanned, where the Spirit of God in a gathering like this may prompt a man or woman to speak in the moment, moving them in a a way that they say, oh, the Spirit's laid something on my heart, and they get up and speak the truth of God's word. That's a prophetic ecstatic utterance. But prophecy also included planned, prepared utterances, Lord willing. This is a planned, prepared prophetic moment in which I worked to present God's truth as best I understood it. So according to Joel's Old Testament prophecy, fulfilled in Acts chapter two, sons and daughters will prophesy, both finding places in, co- in congregational gatherings to exercise the gift of teaching and in leadership. So what's, is Paul exactly prohibiting? He's prohibiting women from exercising a very specific leadership role within the church, specifically the authoritative teaching role, which we identify at Glendale Bible Church as the pulpit ministry. This thirty-minute-ish uh, teaching, over which the elders of the church most closely watch. We believe this for at least three reasons. We believe it because of the grammar, the Greek grammar used in verse 12. When Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over. This couplet is teaching or exercise authority is best understood as a singular activity, not two separate activities. In other words, we believe Paul's referencing a very particular exercise of teaching authority which is to be held separate for men the context is another reason in other words the the letter in which this prohibitive finds itself verse 12 finds itself in the broader context of first timothy uh, which paul writes to charge timothy to stand down some false teachers some men and then in chapter 3 which we'll get to next week He tells them how to select male leaders. So the context is is a context. In fact, I should go on to say the preponderance of scriptural evidence is of male leadership, both Old and New Testament, in this authoritative teaching role. And then history. Complementarity in this respect, in these roles, uh, and I'm gonna qualify it a little, I didn't in the definition on the screen, was by and large, the universal understanding of this passage for the first two millennia of the church. By and large, the complementarity of men's and women's roles was not questioned until the late 20th century in the church. And I believe that, I'm going to try not to overstate or understate, so I'll move on. So on what basis does Paul teach that this is God's truth? What reason does he give for this? We know that we believe that this is what he's teaching based on grammar, context, and history. But why, what reason does Paul say that he wants to limit the pulpit ministry to men only? Let's look again at verse 12 and 13. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Why? Why? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. The first reason that Paul gives for restricting the role of women is the created order. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is he's referencing back to creation in the creation narrative. It's very, very important to note that Paul does not offer as a reason that men should be the ones exercising authoritative teaching because something was going on in Ephesus that was unique. He doesn't offer that as a reason. It's very important here to note that it's not based, the prohibition's not based on something unique going on in Ephesus. In other words, he doesn't say, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, because the temple of Artemis, which was present in Ephesus, is running away with culture, and we need to get those women under control. He doesn't say that. He hearkens back to the creation narrative before Genesis chapter three, which is the fall. He's gonna get to Genesis three here in a minute. he says this was God's design from the beginning this was meant to be the blessing of God the second reason Paul gave for limiting women's roles does have to do with the fall of humanity I'll read it again it's on the screen I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over man she must be quiet why for Adam was formed first then Eve created order And Adam was not the one deceived. He's talking about Genesis 3, when the serpent came to Eve and said, take the fruit, and she took it and took a bite. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. On first reading, it sounds as if Paul is blaming Eve for the fall and I believe some have wrongly concluded that men should do the preaching because women have proven irresponsible. I think there has been teaching in the church based on this verse that is wrong in that regard. I do not believe Paul saying that the authoritative teaching role in the church is to be reserved for men because women, are Eve, proved uniquely vulnerable to deception. I do not believe that's what Paul is saying. In fact, we know that most of the problems in Ephesus for which Paul's writing to Timothy are being caused by men who have been deceived in our teaching falsely. You following? Indeed, we know that the vast majority of heretical theology in the history of the church was promulgated by men, not women. So Paul can't be saying that men should teach because they are less vulnerable to false theology deception it just doesn't bear out it doesn't bear out contextually first Timothy it doesn't bear out historically I want to make a joke about if you're married it doesn't bear out there either <laughs> the point Paul is the point Paul's making in noting the deception of Eve has to do with Adam's silence his failure. His failure to act within the design of God, to take the authoritative teaching role and stand between the woman and the serpent, saying that's not at all what God said. Follow me closely. Unlike Eve, who was deceived, according to Paul, and as a result, sinned, Adam was not deceived. Adam went willfully. Adam went knowingly. The woman fell into sin because she was blinded by Satan's deception. Adam fell into sin because he was willfully rebellious. This is why Jesus Christ is described as the second Adam, not the second Eve. Jesus Christ is described as the second Adam. He's the Adam who rightfully took his place, stepped to the plate and offered authoritative teaching. Such that in Matthew chapter 4, when Satan came to him and tried to deceive him, he was not silent as the first Adam had been. No, he stepped up and he took his rightful place and protected the second Eve. Who is the bride of the second Adam? The church. So when the second Adam came and took his rightful place of teaching authority as a man, standing down the deceiver, and then going on to give his life as a sacrifice, he did so in preserving the church, his bride, in a way that the first Adam had failed to do, failed to act, failed to protect. The bride which God the Father had given to Adam at the first wedding in the garden. This is why Paul explains in Romans that many died through Adam's trespass. Praise God, many are saved through Christ's righteousness. Paul's saying that men are to take the lead in the church as the authoritative teachers because that was the role given to Adam at creation, and it was the role that he failed to fulfill. Paul's saying that we want to, as men, be found in the second Adam, taking our rightful place. He's about to talk about women as well. In in verse 15, finding their rightful place. And when men fail to do their job, the job given at creation, I don't say this as uh, rhetorical flair. When men fail to do their job, all hell hell breaks loose. Hell breaks loose in the church, in the home, and in broader culture. Make no mistake, the argument is not that men should assume the authoritative teaching role in the church because they'll do a better job. (laughs) Lord willing, we'll do a better job. Your argument of Scripture is that men are to be authoritative and teachers in the, in the church because it was the design of God from creation. And that if we don't, women suffer. We make them unique and families suffer and the church suffers. Most notably, the bride of Christ suffers. right let's finish the passage but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in other words if not because of i'll get more to this but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith love holiness with propriety if they continue in faith in christ love of christ in one another holiness, that that is the sanctification process, if they live their lives with propriety, modesty, if they emulate Christ, if they uh, demonstrate the grace they've received as an outworking of God saving them. This verse cannot possibly mean that salvation for women depends on them physically giving birth. It can't possibly mean that. Well, it can't possibly mean it because in 1 Corinthians 7, the same author, Paul, champions singleness, encourages singleness for both men and women. So it can't be that he's arguing here some years later, mind you, that women have to get married and bear children in order to be saved. That's not what he's saying. And if you find it confusing, well, then you're with Peter. Peter, in one of his letters in the New Testament, said Paul's reasoning was hard to follow sometimes. But that doesn't mean it's not important to wrestle with. What might he be saying? Most consider this reference to childbearing as an illustration of the ultimate mark of femininity. Nothing defines a woman as clearly as the ability, not the actuality. You don't have to have children to be fully feminine. You have to be able, right? You have to have the design, chromosomal design, right? You've got to have the organs that could. You have to have the potentiality of bearing children. And I raise this, and it should comfort us that there's nothing new under the sun. If you're familiar with modern debates about masculinity and femininity, Paul's got something to say to that debate. Women are those who at their most basic level have the potentiality to bear children. But you don't have to bear a child, 1 Corinthians 7, he encourages singleness, to be fully woman. No, we become fully us through faith in Christ. To, by finding our spot as in the bride of Christ. Paul is referencing this reality to lend credence to the distinct role of women within the created order, a role that we should, should not be resisted or resented. And every day in popular news, the role of women is in, within our culture is downplayed, degraded, attacked, resented, and particularly at this most basic level, the potentiality to have children. I'm sure you're keenly aware of the debates going on Here's the good news. Although Eve fell prey to deception because Adam was silent, because of Adam's poor leadership, salvation is still available through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, victimization at the hands of poor male leadership need not, and in fact is not, the last word in women's lives. And in a room this size, that message is desperately needed. God has done something for both men and women through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that addresses the victimization of women by men. Such that women can be saved if they continue in faith, in love. Faith in Christ, love for Christ, holiness. Women aren't held back by the poor leadership of men. They have an advocate, a mediator in Christ our Savior praise God. It's true that the church has reason to be ashamed of how it has treated women in times past, using verses verses like the one in today's passage to oppress women. This is wrong and cannot be tolerated. But the church has no reason to be ashamed of what God has designed for men and women in redemptive history. In fact, it's my deepest conviction that if we have our interpretation correct in both position and posture, then the women of our church, our world, our families should experience richer blessings, greater freedom, greater joy, and more fruitfulness. And towards that end, I want to pray. Would you bow your head? Father, we ask for your mercy on us as a community. Because of Genesis 3, there is lasting and real difficulty between the genders. It seems to be coming to a critical head in our generation such that the definition of male and female within popular culture is up for grabs. Have mercy on your church. I pray we'd not resent your design. And if we disagree, Father, on non-essential, the role of men and women in the church, let us be charitable towards each other. For your glory's sake and the joy of your people. Amen.